Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I want to share a story with you that's very dear to my heart, and that is the story of Peter Pan. Now, before we jump into it, I want to talk a little bit about stories that matter, and how do we know if a story matters? I think the the simple answer to that is that stories that stick around, they stick around for a reason, and I I think that that reason is because the story connects with people in a very deep way, in a subconscious way, perhaps. And with the story of Peter Pan, I think that's obviously true. I think it's a story that everybody in my generation knows, everybody in the generation ahead of me, and even in the generations below me. They all know the story of Peter Pan, even though it's only, it's only been around for a little while. Most people know the story through the Disney version, which is a cartoon, you know, cartoon movie version of the story of Peter Pan. Um, but they do a really good job of laying out the story. Now, when I think about Peter Pan and why it sticks around, I personally think that there's a deep mythological, mythological element to it that's connecting with people in a way that perhaps they may not even understand. But from a, just a pop culture perspective and, and just people in general, if you were to ask them why they appreciate Peter Pan, it seems like everybody recognizes the value in in just never letting go of a playful side of you, a side of you that sees wonder in the world, a side, a side of you that can always be a kid. You know, and I think as human beings, it's very important for us to be playful and to enjoy ourselves and to not take things too seriously. But I think that this is actually just one aspect of the story of Peter Pan. And I think people, they, you know, on the surface, maybe consciously, they love Peter Pan because of this, this idea that, oh, you never have to grow up. And, you know, you can always, you can always be a child and have fun, at least in your heart. And while that's the modern, probably most common interpretation of the story of Peter Pan, I think that there's actually a much deeper, more important, more relevant message here. And, I, and I'm not sure that everybody who reads or watches the movie uh, ever gets to fully understand that, or maybe comes to recognize that on their own. And so what I would like to do here is lay out the story and just go through the narrative as well as the characters, and perhaps just provide a different point of view, a different insight into what's actually happening in the story of Peter Pan. And when I look at this, I really do think that this is a modern mythology. and. What I mean by that is that mythology or myth is, is a story that teaches something that's true regardless of the context of the story. So the story itself, the context, the, the fanciful adventures and the, the pirates on flying pirate ships and this Neverland in the stars, it's all very fanciful, just like uh, ancient mythology may have been. But at the same time, there's a truth in the story that's, that's true. <laughs> there's an aspect of the story that's very important for us to understand. And just like any good mythology, it's just being brought to us through the context of the story. And just like all good mythology, Peter Pan, the movie Peter Pan, when you watch the movie, the first scene is a scene of the stars. Now, it's the second star to the right, which straight on till morning will take you to Neverland. But bigger than that, it's, it's where all mythology comes from. 
all ancient mythology began when people were looking to the stars with awe and trying to replicate that in their own lives. And the other part of it that, that right away gives you this clear indication that this is a modern mythology is that when you watch the movie, the very first words that are said by the narrator is, all of this has happened before, and it will all happen again. And that, that simple idea that this story is something that happens over and over and over, it indicates to us that, that the context, the actual characters and the actual setting and the, the unbelievable adventure is just a vehicle for transmitting the message to us. And that's how mythology works. So starting at the very beginning, Peter Pan. Peter Pan likes to visit this house where the darlings live. And he likes to visit because that's where they tell stories about him. And they believe in him there. Now, the different members of the family have different understandings of who Peter Pan is. And as we go through this, uh, we'll talk a little bit about who each of the characters is, or who, who each of the characters are, and why uh, they're important to the story. So, first of all, we have Mrs. Darling. And it's, her understanding of Peter Pan is described as the spirit of youth. So from her perspective, Peter Pan is this thing that all children have that keeps them young or playful or active, that helps them find joy as a child. And to some extent, that may be true. That, that harkens back to the, the popular version or the popular idea of what the story of Peter Pan is about, which is you can always have this spirit of youth with you. Now, Mr. Darling, he's a more practical man, <laughs> and he, he doesn't believe in Peter Pan the way that the others believe in him. He wouldn't characterize it as the spirit of youth. He characterizes it as poppycock. <laughs> he, he basically just disregards all the stories as silly stories, uh, Pan and pirates, and he calls it all poppycock. Now, the next group of, or the next family members who have a relationship with Peter Pan are the two boys, George and Michael. Now, George and Michael are younger than their, their sister, Wendy. And to them, the stories are just fun. They can just, they're children. So when the stories are told, they can just see themselves in the story. They can experience it like a child. And it's just a game to them. And it's just pure fun. And they don't care which character they're playing. They just want to play. So even when somebody has to be Captain Hook, one of them will volunteer and they just play with each other. And that's how, that's how young children engage with the story. Now, the next member of the family, and really the critical member of the family for the story, is Wendy. Now, the book may be called Peter Pan. The movie may be called Peter Pan. But in the context of this actual event, the way that we know the story playing out, the story is actually about Wendy. She's the main character. Because on this night, with her father and mother getting ready to go to some work event that, he needs, that they need to get dressed up for, and the father's flustered because he can't find the things that he needs, his, his cufflinks and his shirt front to get out the door, in this moment of frustration, the, the father, Mr. Darling, tells Wendy that it's time for her to grow up. It's time, it's time for, her, for her to stop telling these stories and believing these stories. And, it's and he says, young lady, this is your last night in the nursery. Now, nobody's excited to hear this. Mrs. Darling's not excited. The boys aren't excited. Wendy's not excited. Even the dog Nana's not excited. <laughs> but, but when Mr. Darling takes the dog outside, and he's by himself with just the dog who can't talk back, He's, he's talking out loud, and you can see he's doing this thing that a lot of us do when we get flustered or frustrated, or we, we say something, and then we, in our minds, it's almost as if we have to double down on it, and we have to make sure that we really believe what we said. And so he's talking to the dog, who again can't talk back, and he says, sooner or later, Nana, people have to grow up. And so right away from the beginning of the story, we have this juxtaposition of the idea of what the whole story is about, never growing up, and this idea that the adult figure is saying, you must grow up. 
Now, the interesting thing to point out here, and I know it's kind of early in the story, we haven't introduced Captain Hook yet, but in the recording of Disney version of Peter Pan, if you listen closely enough, you'll notice that the character of the father and the character of Captain Hook are voiced by the same actor, and that's intentional. Okay, so Wendy doesn't want to grow up, and so her mother comforts her and the boys about it. And she, she's, she's a mother who's trying to be there for her children, but at the same time, in that culture and in that place, uh, London, she's going to have to follow the lead of her husband. And so she says, now children, don't judge your father too harshly. He really loves you very much. Now, it's, it, it can often be, love is something that can be expressed through words. But in this moment, the children aren't feeling that love through the actions. And that's an important aspect of the story as well, to understand what we do to people versus how they feel about that. Uh, what we do, what we say with our words versus what we do with our actions. Now, uh, the father and the mother, the darlings, they go off for the night. They lock the doors. They put the dog outside. They lock the doors. The kids are in bed and, and they leave. And so now the scene is set to introduce the actual character of Peter Pan. Now, in, on this night, Peter Pan has returned because he's lost his shadow and he's looking for it. Now, fortunately, Wendy has found the shadow and she's kept it in the drawer for him. And so when he finds it, he tries to put it back on himself. He, he tries to reattach his shadow by using soap. And this is, um, this is perhaps the first indication of Peter Pan's, we could say maturity level, or we could just say his understanding of how things work, of how the world works. Another good example of this is when Wendy once she sewed the shadow back on for him, she offers to give him a kiss. And um, Peter Pan has no idea what a kiss is, you know? And so it's just another example of him not understanding how things work. Now, now who is Peter Pan? Why doesn't he understand how things work? Where does he come from? Now, Peter is an interesting name because it's uh it's a christian name it comes from it comes from the bible and this obviously in london this was a christian society a christian culture but pan pan's a different kind of name pan is actually goes back harkens back to older stories about about a trickster about um character who liked to have fun at the expense of others and who basically in his behavior was never fully mature. And so while Mrs. Darling thinks of Peter Pan as the spirit of youth, and George and Michael think of Peter Pan as a literal character who's, who's really out there doing things, and Mr. Darling thinks of it all as poppycock, the reality is that Peter Pan really does represent something specific. And what that is is an aspect of people and something that can really manifest itself in children, particularly when the environment that they're living in, the environment that they're growing up in, the adults who are in their lives are not fostering, they're not fostering perhaps a healthy progression forward. And so in this case, we see that conflict of, of, a, of an adult figure who's not fostering a healthy environment uh, as as the, the environment that Peter Pan lives in in Neverland, and then this manifestation of this side of a person who will react to that environment. Now, that person is, of course, Captain Hook, and we'll get to him uh, in just a minute. The story continues because Peter Pan is there in, in their nursery in the home, and Tinkerbell's there with him, and Wendy... It seems as if it's actually the first time that Wendy's seen Peter Pan and talked to him. And she's curious why he came. And he's, he says that he's there because he likes to hear the stories about himself. Because Wendy, <laughs> this is another 
aspect of Peter Pan that reminds us of his immaturity is that he's there to hear stories about himself. And that's what he likes. He likes thinking about himself. Now, when children are really, really young, the only thing they really can think about is themselves. Now, it's true that we're all literally the center of our own universes. But in the maturation process, going from a a young baby to a, a toddler to a child to an adolescent, that concept of being the center of the universe Uh, Because we're part of this group, we're part of families and societies and communities, that idea must at some point relent to the idea that there are other people who are important. And this is something that Peter Pan can't, can't do on his own. He, in fact, will see that he, he can't do it at all until there's somebody in his life who, who kind of pulls that out of him, who elicits that out of him. Now, an example of of him only thinking of himself, one is that he comes there only to listen to his stories or to retrieve his shadow. But the other thing is that while he's there and Tinkerbell is there, uh, he, he does a good job of ignoring her challenges, right? She gets locked in a drawer. She's mad about what's going on with Wendy. And Peter Pan doesn't even go looking for her. He completely forgets about her. And then another example is as Wendy's trying to help him put his shadow back on with a sewing needle. She's just talking and talking, and his response to her talking to him is to say, girls talk too much. (laughs) So he's there to listen to her talk, but only if it's about him. Okay. So eventually, uh, Wendy sews the shadow back on, and there's the possibility of an exchange of a kiss. Tinkerbell gets jealous, and she comes out and she's she she doesn't talk out loud but peter pan can understand what she's saying and he's she, they ask her oh what's tinkerbell saying and he, and he says tinkerbell says that wendy is a big ugly girl and at first everybody laughs but then wendy pauses and and here's the here's the first one of the first signs that we see that that maybe her dad was right that maybe it is time for her to no longer sleep in the nursery Because at being insulted by Tinkerbell, Wendy responds, oh, well, I think she's lovely, right? She doesn't doesn't take the offense uh, and then launch it back, you know, something that perhaps Tinkerbell or Peter Pan wouldn't be able to do is she says, oh, well, well, I I still think she's lovely. Now, Wendy tells them, she tells Peter Pan that she's no longer going to be able to, to be in the nursery and tell the stories. And Peter Pan won't stand for that. He says that that just can't be. And so he decides that that very night, he will take Wendy and he will fly off to Neverland. Now, Wendy says, well, what about the boys? And Peter says, well, they'll just come too. And so all three of them are just, the plan is to, to leave the nursery and to go off to Neverland where they can all be children forever and play forever. Now. In order to get there, they need to fly. And here's another indication of Peter's complete lack of awareness. Because in the moment where they need to fly, and he's the boy who can fly and teach them, he completely forgets how to fly. And it it may seem silly because, well, of course he's flying, but in his mind, he's just always flown. And so he's never done any kind of self-examination to understand why it is that he flies. So he has to sit there for a minute, he has to think about it, and he decides that the secret is happy thoughts. In order to fly, you have to think happy thoughts. And um, he says, wonderful thoughts, any little, any happy little thought will do. And it doesn't work. He's still flying, but Wendy and the boys, they can't fly. And so then He has to think about it a little bit more, and he realizes that there is another aspect of it that makes him fly, that's allowing him to fly, and that's Tinkerbell. And so he grabs her, and he sprinkles some dust on them, and it's her dust mixed with their happy thoughts that allow them to fly. Now, there's actually some really beautiful analogies in there, where if you're able to think happy thoughts, you really can fly. Um, Maybe not off the ground, but in a moment where 
where things aren't going well or you don't, <laughs> you don't feel very happy, you don't feel like moving, sometimes just having some happy thoughts in our mind can help motivate us to get us going forward. And that could be any number of things. It could be people, it could be goals, it could be, you know, just, just health. <laughs> it could be anything. Anything that you enjoy uh, can really make you feel better. And, and that's like flying in a way. And in the end, he's in, in, he, in the song that plays during the scene, he says, it says, think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. So I think that part right there ties back to this idea that this story is about never growing up and that that can be a good thing and that we can always be playful. And in that way, I think it is great. Um, but soon enough, we'll see that the story has a little bit of a darker element and a, a little bit deeper of an element to it. And that's, uh, that begins to play out as soon as they take off for Neverland. They look up into the heavens. They see the second star to the right. And they fly there straight on until it becomes morning. Now, what is Neverland? It's an interesting name, Never Neverland. Going along with this idea that the story is about not growing up, it's really easy to look at it and say, this is, well, well what, I think, what I think most people say is it's called Neverland, or what most people think is that it's called Neverland because it could never actually exist, right? There isn't a place where bodies stop growing and time stops and, and you don't have to grow up. So in a, in a way, I think that's how people think of it is that it's Neverland because it's impossible. But what I actually think is that it's called Neverland because it's the place where you never grow up. And there's a reason you never grow up, and that reason's introduced right away. As soon as you get to Neverland, you get to meet Captain Hook. Now, Captain Hook is an old man. He's an old, grumpy man. And he's obsessed with capturing and killing, destroying Peter Pan. So, so, so if we take a step back, Peter Pan, remember we said, is an element of people that manifests itself, particularly in children, an element that can manifest itself and come across as destructive, annoying, frustrating, bothersome, immature. And so when we look at a man like Captain Hook, what he's, the character is trying to kill the other character. But mythologically, what he's trying to do is, is remove this aspect of the children in his life. And if we remember also that the voice of Captain Hook is the same voice as the father, Mr. Darling, we start to see the, I don't know, the surfacing of this deeper thread that runs through the story. Um, and we'll see more of that as we get to the Lost Boys. But for now, let's think about Captain Hook a little bit. Captain Hook is the leader of a pirate group. And that pirate group is made up of mostly pirates that go unnamed. They're kind of portrayed as dumb and silly and very compliant. But nobody really knows who they are. Except for one of the, uh, except for one of the pirates on his ship. And that's Shmi. Now, Shmi's an interesting character because he cares about the feelings of the crew. He keeps trying to advocate for them. He keeps trying to say, hey, the crew wants to go to sea. The crew's getting restless. They, they're pirates. They don't want to be here on this Neverland. They want to be out in the ocean, you know, looting ships. That's what pirates do. They want to go move on with their life from this, this Neverland. But they're trapped there. And why are they trapped there? They're trapped there because of their captain. Captain Hook refuses to let them go because he wants them focused on what he cares about. Now, Shmi is in this uncomfortable position of trying to placate the crew, but he's also trying to please the captain. And so he always sides with the captain, which means <laughs> that just means that he's never... Like any time that there's going to be a conflict, he's not going to take the side of the crew. And where does the crew come from? The crew 
is captured lost boys who are converted to pirates. Okay, so if the voice of Captain Hook is the same voice as the father, he's that authoritarian tyrant who, in a moment of anger and rage, demands that his child grows up and demands that there's an end to Peter Pan. Then if we look at Shmi, Shmi, who plays both sides but always sides with the captain, would then represent the spouse of that authoritarian tyrant who, while they, on some level, they really do care about the crew or the kids, they don't have the strength. They don't have the voice to stand up to the captain or to stand up to their spouse when they become that authoritarian tyrant. So, as the story progresses, Hook happens to He's he's just talking and there's a there's a pirate up on the up on the mast and he's playing an accordion and he's singing and it's kind of an obnoxious song. So rather than use gentleness, use his words, use patience and kindness, Captain Hook pulls out a gun and he shoots the pirate dead. And immediately this gives us insight into the way that an authoritarian figure, or a parent like Captain Hook thinks. The most important thing is the comfort of the captain, and he gets it by any means he deems necessary. Shmi isn't happy with this, but again, there's not much that the less, I don't know, less powerful spouse can do. And so he simply says to the captain, you know, that's bad form. And rather than acknowledge that, yes, that was bad form, he immediately turns his anger, Captain Hook immediately turns his anger on Peter Pan. And he says, was it not bad form when Peter Pan cut off my hand and threw it to the crocodile? This introduces another really interesting aspect of the story, the crocodile. The crocodile is multifaceted. He's some, so the, as the story goes, in the past, sometime in the past when we don't, we don't know when it happened, Peter Pan cut off Captain Hook's hand and he threw it to the crocodile. The crocodile swallowed the hand and is now just licking his lips all the time, dreaming of eating the rest of Captain Hook. He felt like it was so delicious. To, now, to keep the captain aware of where the crocodile is, the, they've also thrown him an alarm clock. This alarm clock that went down into the crocodile, he swallowed it and it's down in his belly. And <laughs> what, that, what that alarm clock does for the captain and for Shmi is it helps them to hear the crocodile whenever he's coming around. But from a, from a mythological perspective, a literary motif perspective, that clock now represents to the captain the ticking of time. And as an adult, who doesn't appreciate any of the aspects of childhood, who's only serious all the time, who's never playful, the ticking of time is a very scary thing because it's, it's, it's one thing you can't control with power and force. It's something that's always chasing you, just like the crocodile is always chasing Captain Hook. If we look at Captain Hook as a parent who's an authoritarian and rules their household in a way where they, they don't use their words and everything's about them, you, you ask the question, where did that come from? Or maybe another question is, where did the childish aspect of them go? And that's where you see that Captain Hook is not a whole person. He's not all there. He's missing something. He's missing a part of himself. And it's his hand. It's a very important appendage. It's something that he probably relied on a lot in the past. But now, that hand is in the belly of a crocodile. And he's never going to get it back. And who did it to him? Who did that? It was Peter Pan. So if we sit with that just for a second, we can see that 
at some point, Hook was also a young boy. He was growing up. And he had a tyrant of his own. He had a tyrant who demanded that he join his crew. And unfortunately, Hook obliged that that tyrant. And he became part of the crew. But what did it require? It required that that playful, ever immature part of him, that piece of him inside that was a child, to cut off an important part of him and just lose it forever. And so in a really sad way, Captain Hook is an incomplete person trying to force the same punishment or the same outcome on other unfortunate people. And when we look at families, is this not how families, family culture gets propagated, right? The family cycle, the trauma cycle. And so in a sad way, you realize that Captain Hook was at one point a lost boy himself. With that thought, let's jump over to who the lost boys are. Because at this point, uh, Captain Hook started shooting cannonballs at Peter and Wendy and the boys. And so Peter tells her to take Wendy and the boys and, and go, go find the lost boys. And along the way, uh, Tinkerbell runs on ahead and she gets the lost boys and they're, they're in their secret hideout before Wendy and Michael and John are able to get there. And so what she does when she gets there, she instructs the lost boys to look at Wendy as if she's a bird that needs to be shot out of the sky. <laughs> and um, they've never seen a Wendy bird before. And so they, they figure that Peter Pan told Tinkerbell what to do. And so Tinkerbell's telling them. And so they go and they try to shoot her down. Now, this idea goes back to, or the, the reason that Tinkerbell does it is because she's jealous, which harkens back to Peter Pan's inability to recognize what's going on around him, outside of him, right? He's so focused on himself. And in a weird way, that's the same symptom that Captain Hook has. And if any of the Lost Boys have to give up a part of themselves to join the crew, to become that tyrant themselves, they'll also be fixated forever on themselves. And because Peter Pan's not able to see what Tinkerbell needs, what she wants, what she desires, she grows jealous. And so uh, she tries to shoot down Wendy. Now, Peter Pan... When he returns and finds out what's happened, he's upset with Tinkerbell. And so he banishes her from Neverland forever, which is in, you know, is a crazy amount of time. Uh, she's never allowed to come back. But here again, Wendy demonstrates her budding maturity, where she steps in to defend Tinkerbell once again. <laughs> and she says, well, not forever, Peter. That's, you know, you can't do that forever. And so, Tink- so Peter Pan says, ah, a week then. So again, uh, the difference between forever and a week is, is infinite. And so again, we see that Peter Pan really doesn't understand the workings of the world, the workings of time. He, <laughs> he hasn't gotten to the point where he's being pursued. He hasn't allowed himself to be pursued by time. Um, so he hasn't, he hasn't matured. Okay, so then they get to the Lost Boys. And uh, now we're introduced to the Lost Boys, and it's a bunch of young kids all dressed up like animals, living in a tree, on an island, <laughs> you know, just running around playing games. And the wearing of animal skins just is a good representation of how primitive they're living or how just wild they're living. They're not, they're not behaving like good little boys and girls, they're just animalistic. They're living however they can to survive. And this is what happens to children who grow up in an environment where there's a tyrant running the island. Because the tyrant, a tyrant, one of the reasons this story is, it sticks, to, sticks out to me so much, or it's, it's so impactful for me, is because in my house growing up, I was raised by a tyrant. And I was a lost boy. And what makes a lost boy a lost boy is that they don't have a mother. Now, if we look at the story from the beginning, 
Wendy, Michael, and John, they have a father and a mother in the house. But when the father gets upset and demands that this is their last night in the nursery, at least in that moment, there's not a big discussion about that. He says, this is it. This is what's happening. And so when you have a father who does that consistently, day after day after day, stamps out the needs of children, that gentleness, that warmth, that kindness, that you know, being held in the arms of a loved one. There are father tyrants who make it impossible for their children to have a mother. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes the tyrant is the mother. Sometimes kids are lost. Sometimes there are lost boys because their father doesn't allow their mother to be a mother. And sometimes there are lost boys because the mother doesn't know how to be a mother. None of this is explicitly stated in the story. And so you don't actually know anything about the particular lost boys' situations. You only realize that they're lost boys because they don't have mothers. They don't even know what a mother is. And (laughs) it may sound strange, but for me, I, I grew up with two parents in my house my entire life. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized I had never had a mother. And it was only then that I realized I didn't fully know what a mother was. Fortunately for me, I married a woman who was able to show that to me with when we had our own children. And in this case, however, Wendy appearing is going to be the first instance for these boys to understand what a mother is. Now, what the Lost Boys do is they always want to play games. Everything to them is a game. Now, from a human perspective, pretty much everything we're doing really is a game. When you go to work, when we go to school, when you interact in any way that's not, that's not, it, it, when you do anything that's not just natural, right, that just wasn't here from the beginning, it's because games have got us here. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of literature about that. But if you really stop to step back and look at, at, look at what a game is, a game is two people, two or more people, deciding what the context is, deciding what the rules are, deciding who the characters are, and then they play it out. So children play out games this way. And it's how children learn. It's how they learn to interact with others. It's how they learn who they are. It's how they learn what they're good at and where their place is going to be in the world. So all they ever want to do is play games. And all Captain Hook wants to do is stop them from playing games. Now, one of the games that they pick is um, they run off and they like to interact with the natives. And to them, it's always a game. Sometimes the natives win and sometimes they win. But here in this, in this story, Captain Hook steps in once again to make sure that it's not a game, that he can stamp out that game and control the situation. And so what he does is he, he kidnaps Tiger Lily, who's the princess of the native tribe on the island. And his intention is to kidnap Tiger Lily and force her to tell him where Peter Pan's lair is. Now the story cuts to Peter Pan taking Wendy around the island. And as he takes her around the island, one of the places she wants to visit is the Mermaid Lagoon. And when you get there, you realize once again that Peter is unaware of what's going on in the minds of all these women, right? He, he can't read Tinkerbell, or he ignores her. He doesn't fully understand that Wendy also has feelings towards him because she's growing up and she's starting to not be a child anymore. And then when they get there, the mermaids also are all, all very fond of Peter, Peter Pan. And they want to hear his stories and they want to, you know, they want to express their interest in him in a way that makes him feel flattered. But when they start to pick on Wendy, he, har- he just laughs. He hardly realizes that they're picking on him because he thinks it's just a game. He doesn't understand that they've matured to a point where there's an aspect of it that's not a game anymore and it's not as fun. 
or at least he's playing the game like a child and their game is a more mature child or sorry a more mature game and they don't want to play it the way that he's playing it now this may be a good point to talk about tinkerbell a little bit because it's in the same vein of peter pan not fully understanding what she is or who she is now there i know that there Sometimes when you're out driving around, you'll see cars with Tinkerbell stickers or decals on them, or sometimes you'll see women who have Tinkerbell tattoos or Tinkerbell, you know, clothing or whatever. It's some women, for some reason, associate with Tinkerbell. If we think about who Tinkerbell is in relationship to Peter Pan, she's this tiny little pixie or fairy who, although she has a woman's body, is so small that it could never be enjoyed by a man. And Peter Pan has this child's mind who imagines what a woman is to him, right? Remember when we hearken, if we hearken back to the very beginning of the story when Peter Pan's trying to teach them how to fly? There's two aspects of it. There's happy thoughts and there's pixie dust. Well, in reality, that's just the same thing to Peter Pan. Tinkerbell is Peter Pan's fantasy. She's this woman who cares only about him, who's always there for him, who makes him feel so good he can fly. And yet, she's a fantasy because she's just so tiny she can never actually love him physically, be there for him, uh, have a real relationship with him. He doesn't understand what a real uh, grown-up, mature woman would be like. He only has a childish idea, and that's Tinkerbell. So when you think about all these women who, who associate themselves with Tinkerbell, I'm not saying that they know this, and I'm not saying that they're choosing this, but in a real way, what they're saying, what that symbology is, is a woman who's the partner fantasy or the sexual fantasy of an immature boy. <laughs> and that's Tinkerbell. Now, going back to the story, getting back to the story, Peter Pan is with Wendy and they're exploring the island and they went out to look at the mermaids. They had a poor experience with the mermaids because Peter Pan misread the situation. And then they happen upon Hook, who has Tiger Lily. And he's taken Tiger Lily and put her in the water. And as the currents are rising as the tide is rising um, she's about to be drowned by the water he's demanding that she tell him where peter pan and his lair are now to tiger lily's credit she doesn't she doesn't break she doesn't tell him where peter pan is um and in that moment hook is trying to convince her and this again is a good insight into the mind or the behavior of a tyrannical parent because he looks at Tiger Lily and he's and he tells her that that he wouldn't hurt Peter Pan he just wants to know where he lives and he says to Mr. Shmi he turns and he says am I not a man of my word Shmi and the tell or the giveaway is that Shmi crosses his fingers and then he answers in the affirmative that yes you're someone who can be trusted and um, anybody who's had a tyrant parent can tell you that their words are often untrustworthy. They can't be trusted. In this moment, Peter Pan arrives and he's going to try to save Tiger Lily. Now you can tell once again that for Peter Pan, this is just a game because he doesn't actually want to fight with Captain Hook. He just wants to bother him and harass him. He wants to imitate him and poke fun at him. And in this, in this fight that's going on, he gets Captain Hook to hang from his hook on a rock, and, and he says, well, well, a codfish on a hook. And so again, for Peter Pan, it's all fun and games. And in a way, that's what Hook despises about Peter Pan, is the, is the fun and the games and the constant playing. So in the end, Hook is able to save Tiger Lily, and they go back. And um, they reunite with the natives, and there's a big celebration. And in this celebration, Wendy becomes upset with Peter Pan. And now you, have, uh, now you have Tinkerbell, who's upset with Peter Pan. 
and you have Wendy who becomes upset with Peter Pan, both because he's not able to see the emotions that he's eliciting inside of them. He's, he's very self-centered. He's very focused on himself. And so now that Tinkerbell is upset with Pan, Hook hatches a new scheme in which he's going to kidnap Tinkerbell and use her to discover the secret lair of Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. And it's, again, it's this discontent that she has with Peter that eventually threatens to be his downfall. And um, Captain Hook, he tells Tinkerbell that he's going to leave the island and that um, he will take Wendy with him. And so this is what Tinkerbell wants, is just to get rid of Wendy. And so once again, you see Captain Hook as the, <laughs> as the tyrannical parent using subterfuge. He's using deception and lies to coerce the people on the island into doing what he wants. So in the end, Tinkerbell does show him where Peter Pan's secret hiding place is. And as soon as she does that, he locks her away. And so immediately she knows that she's made a mistake. Now then it cuts in the scene to the actual lair where Peter Pan is in the, in the tree. And the Peter Pan and the, and the Lost Boys and Wendy, Michael, and John have just gotten back from their celebration with the natives after Tiger Lily has been freed. And it's late at night and it's time to go to bed. And so Wendy starts preparing them for bed and tucking them in and talking to them about mothers. And in this scene, um, again, it becomes very apparent that the Lost Boys, they don't, they're Lost Boys because they don't know what it's like to have a mother. And so Wendy begins to explain it to them. And I think there's a lot of really good, kind of beautiful language here used to describe what a mother, like a good, loving mother is, what a mommy is. She says, um, she says, mothers are the most wonderful person in the world, the angel voice that bids you good night. She kisses your cheek and whispers sleep tight. She's a helping hand that guides you along, whether you're right, whether you're wrong. And she compares a mother to a star. And she says that your heart will say heaven on earth. And all this time, as she's describing what a mother is, the pirates are sneaking up on, on Peter Pan's secret hiding place. And outside, Shmi is listening to what Wendy is saying about mothers. And he's realizing that he himself misses his mother or wishes that he had a mother. And so you see this response in him that's kind of a tell that he too is a lost boy. It's just that he's converted over to the tyranny of his pirate. Now, in that moment, the Lost Boys decide that they're all willing to go home. They all want to go back to London to give up the games that they're playing so that they can have a mother. And Wendy is more than obliging, and she says that their mother would welcome them. And Peter Pan, he stands up, and he basically says, okay, you can do whatever you want. You can go if you want. But just remember this. Once you grow up, you can never come back. Never. Now, that's an interesting idea, uh, especially if you juxtapose it to the story of Hook when Peter Pan himself has grown up and comes back. Now, I think that that story is a little, it takes the story of Peter Pan and it takes it off on a different trajectory, focusing on that idea that parents and adults themselves should have an inner child and be, and be playful. And that's not wrong. But in this saying, in what Peter Pan is saying, he's actually missing a little bit of the point himself. He thinks that in order to exist in Neverland, you can never actually grow up. And, and that's the point, is that you can never grow up. But the other point is that, <laughs> is that you can always take kind of the feeling, the play, the childhood-like nature of Neverland you can take it with you into adulthood, even if you grow up. But Peter Pan has only ever seen adults who don't have that aspect in them. The only adults that he knows are pirates. And pirates, through the symbology of the story, pirates are simply lost boys who decided to become pirate. So physically they grew up, and rather than mature, or rather than see the world for what it is and see parenting and childhood for what it is, they see it as this conflict. And that's how they become pirates. Now, 
Once again, Hook goes ahead and he twists his promise. Because what he does is when the Lost Boys and Wendy come out, uh, he captures them and he takes them. And then he, <laughs> he had promised Tinkerbell that he wouldn't lay a finger or a hook on, on Peter Pan. So rather than do either one of those, he lowers a bomb into the treehouse to blow him up. Now, back on, sh- on the ship, back on board, Captain Hook has Wendy, Michael John, and all the Lost Boys, and he's got them tied up. And he threatens them. He basically says, either you join our crew, you become a pirate like us, or you walk the plank. And um, most of them are eager to become pirates just because they don't want to die. They don't want to walk the plank. And in a way, this is similar to Peter Pan's mentality when he says, once you leave Neverland, you can never come back. Never. Captain Hook is saying, you can either be a pirate or you can die. There is no other option. And in this particular situation for the Lost Boys, it feels like there is no other option. And Wendy is the one who's able to stand up to them, to stand up to Captain Hook. She says, uh, she, she says that she will not walk the plank. Or, sorry, she says that she will not join the crew, that she would rather walk the plank. She points out that it's better to, it's better to just give yourself up than to become that thing that, um, that has always tortured you to become that thing that has always hurt you. She, she doesn't want to do that. And so she's more willing to just give it all up than to become that thing. Now, while all of this is happening, Tinkerbell manages to escape. And she flies and she saves Peter from the bomb. And then Peter and Tinkerbell come back. And as Wendy walks over the plank, Peter saves Wendy. And as soon as... Everybody's discovered that Peter Pan's back and he frees the Lost Boys. A battle ensues. And this is the first full-on battle that we see with Captain Hook and his crew versus Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. And right away, you can see the different, I don't know, the different demeanor or the different passion that the crew or the members have. For example, Shmi, who, if we look back, Shmi is always placating the captain. Um, or he's placating the crew and he's always trying to please the captain. But in this case, when it comes down to life and death, he's got no passion for the fight. So rather than fight, Shmi immediately begins gathering things and throwing them in a rowboat so that he can just take off and escape. And in a way, that's kind of the response you see from the, the spouse who is who's not the full tyrant, but is the tyrant's aide, the tyrant's assistant, the spouse who wants to do what's good for the children, but cannot stand up to the other spouse. And so when the passion of the fight ensues, the passion inside of them vanishes, and they want to run away and hide. As the fight goes on, Peter eventually is fighting one-on-one with Captain Hook. And in this fight, once again, it looks like Peter's just going to play a game. But this time, Captain Hook calls him out for it. He says, no, you know, we'll fight, but you're just going to fly. And how can I beat you if you fly? So Peter agrees not to fly. And it's through his own kind of cunning that he's able to actually defeat Captain Hook and, and get a sword to him. But Peter doesn't want to kill Captain Hook. It's still a game to him. He's still a kid. A kid can't kill an adult. And so Peter Pan lets him go. And once again, Hook shows his true colors. And rather than just submit to the loss and jump on the boat with Shmi and take off, he swipes it at Peter and tries to, and tries to kill him. And uh, he almost gets him with his hook. But Peter's able to dodge the swipe, and Captain Hook falls into the water where the crocodile chases him. And so, <laughs> again, you see this. Same thing play out where you have this tyrannical pirate, this tyrannical parent who, who it seems can never be trusted, can never be trusted to just do the right thing because it's always about what they want. It's always about what their desires are or their fears or their anger. And in the end, 
the the captain loses his ship and he loses the lost boys and he loses that pursuit of them and he falls into the water and once again he just has to <laughs> he's being chased by time by old age and he has to retreat with his with his uh his assistant Shmi they retreat into the distance with the crocodile hot on their tail so the the story is basically concluded in Neverland and it's time for Wendy and John and Michael to go home and so this time to get home Tinkerbell flies around the ship and she puts the pixie dust all over the ship so that it can fly and then Peter's able to navigate it home through the air and back at home we we get to see the conclusion of the story with the parents parents have been out all night having fun at their at their work dinner or their work party and they come back to find their children sleeping in bed now perhaps it was all a dream perhaps they were just sleeping there the whole time but when the fan, when the parents come back the father's no longer he's no longer in this stressed out kind of angry attitude and so he's willing to be a little bit lighter on what he had said earlier. He, he doesn't want to pressure Wendy. He, he wants to let her grow up when she's ready to grow up. And so when the question comes up about Wendy leaving the nursery, the father says, all in good time. And when they look out the window, the father and the mother are both able to see the ship floating through the air in the distance. And his, the father says, you know, I have the strangest feeling that I've seen that ship before, a long time ago, when I was very young. And you see the mother look at the father with this endearment uh, by the father's recognition. She, she is clearly moved by his ability to see the value of childhood and to remember it in himself. And to look at the children and say, I was a bit too harsh. And you can grow up when you're ready to grow up. Now, Wendy is ready. She's proven it all along. And she knows now that she is ready. But the beautiful thing about it is that there was, in the end, there was no tyrannical parent trying to force her or trying to kill that childish part of her. They were giving her, in the end, space to make that choice for herself. And the mother is able to hold her children and be gentle with them, and the father is able to be there as well. And it's a beautiful conclusion to the story because you do see that element, that popular element of, you know, it's okay to be a kid. It's okay to, as an adult, to have the joy of childhood still be with you. But you also get to see the example of parents who are not tyrannical, who are not forcing things upon their children who are letting them progress at their own pace and at their own, through their stages of maturity when they're ready. And I think that's really the point. That's really the point of the whole story is that we can all experience these different characters in our lives, Peter Pan and the Tinkerbell that comes with him. And sometimes we encounter lost boys and sometimes we are lost boys because we don't have mothers. But we also we get to see what it's like to have a tyrannical, authoritarian parent who isn't willing to take a step back and let the children be who they are. But we also get to see in the mother and the father parents who, while sometimes they're strict and sometimes they're demanding, they still do step back and give space for their children, for their children to be themselves. And to progress as they to progress as they need. So I think it's a beautiful story, and I think it's really important. And I think that in a way, at some level, everybody experiences this story, either for good or for bad. And in the end, there's a moral. And it's about how we treat people. It's about how we look at people. And there's also this fun 
playful idea that that all of us really can fly. Just like Peter Pan, we really can fly when we leave our cares behind. And I just love the story. I think it's great. And I think all of these reasons, this symbology and this these archetypes and the character narrative that comes out of it is why it's so popular. And I appreciate you for letting me share it with you. So thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast. I hope you find this and every other episode both interesting and engaging. I know I enjoy making them. My goal is to record high-quality conversations, both in terms of content and production value. But there's still a lot I need to learn. So if you have comments or suggestions about the audio recordings or the conversations themselves, please let me know. You can contact me via email at explorerpoet at gmail.com. For more about the Explorer Poet podcast, please visit explorerpoet.com or follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really want to be supportive, please share it with a friend. Thanks.